From Maine to Arizona, Washington to South Carolina, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, a proposed new type of health savings account would give lower-income households more control over their health care choices. Dean Clancy from Americans for Prosperity is here with details. Inflation has surged above 9%. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on the economic and political impact. The Food and Drug Administration has admitted its own actions triggered the baby formula shortage, and they are taking steps to ease the crisis. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And many states across the country are facing big deficits in paying for a wide range of retiree benefits. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council explains on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The Affordable Health Care Act, or Obamacare, actually made health care less affordable and reduced consumer choices. But giving lower-income households the ability to have health savings accounts could correct both of those problems. Dean Clancy is a senior policy fellow with Americans for Prosperity. He is here with details. Dean, welcome to American Radio Journal. Dean, to lay some groundwork, tell us a bit about how the Affordable Health Care Act, most folks know it as Obamacare or ACA, how it currently works. Obamacare is a federal law that tries to subsidize health care for people. It also regulates health insurance. The effect of it has been to drive up costs. Health insurance costs a lot more now because of Obamacare. It also has had the effect of making it harder to get access to the doctors and hospitals you want to see. This is a problem called shrinking networks of providers. The insurance companies are doing this because of the federal mandates in Obamacare. So a law that was designed to try to make health insurance more affordable, that's the name of the law, and more universal has actually had the opposite result. That's how Obamacare is working or not working today. At Americans for Prosperity, we're, we're trying to, to reverse that, and we're pushing reforms. We use the umbrella term personal option that would basically make uh, health care and health insurance more affordable for people with more price transparency and more choice and control for individual patients. One of the ways you're proposing to do this is through health savings accounts. Now, there have been some other health savings account proposals that have floated around over the last few years. This one's a little bit different. Tell us what your health savings account proposal would be. Let me start by just letting listeners know what exactly a health savings account is, you know, for the few that don't know. Under current law, you can save and pay for health care, out-of-pocket expenses, tax-free with an HSA. This is an existing kind of account. It's a little bit like an IRA or a 401k for health care. And the beauty of it is the money that you deposit in your HSA is untaxed under the federal income and payroll tax laws. So in effect, your health care dollar goes farther. But even better, the money that builds up in the account, and you can use it like a savings account, or you could even invest it if you wanted. 
that those gains, those that interest is also untaxed. And here's the best part. When you finally go to spend money out of your account for health care expenses, that also is untaxed. This is the only account in America that works this way, that has the triple tax advantage. As a result, you can get what amounts to a, a discount of anywhere from 10 to 37% on every medical purchase you make using your HSA. Now, why don't most Americans know about this or have an HSA? It's because there are federal rules and red tape that make it hard for people to use this powerful tool. Only about 10% of Americans have an HSA, about 30 million people. The rest of us basically are shut out because federal law requires that in order to have an HSA, you must have a special kind of health insurance with a high deductible. Now, most Americans, thanks to Obamacare, have a high deductible health plan. That is to say, they have to shell out a lot of money out of pocket before their insurance kicks in. But most of those policies don't qualify for an HSA. So 90% of us have no access. We're trying to change that at Americans for Prosperity. And our new proposal, which you mentioned and which I'll describe now, we call it the HSA option. And the idea is that if you are on Obamacare, you're buying insurance through your state exchange, you're getting federal subsidies because you're low income, you should be able to take those federal subsidies from Obamacare in the form of a cash deposit to an HSA that you own and control. So if you have individually purchased insurance, that should qualify you for an HSA, which that would be a change, and you should be able to take your money as a deposit to an HSA. This would help about 5 million Americans, lower-income folks, who currently don't have access and don't have the money to save in an HSA. Now they would have money, thousands of dollars a year potentially, but if they don't use it, they get to keep it. It's not like it goes away at the end of the year. The money just keeps building up over time. Eventually, you could have a very sizable nest egg for your health care costs in your personally owned HSA. Why are we proposing this? Because this is a way to help lower income Americans have access to this powerful tool that doesn't add a dime to the deficit. We would only be spending money that is already going to be spent anyway through the existing subsidies, which, by the way, just go directly to an insurance company. You mentioned that this is going to be using dollars that are already being spent. There's also this term silver loading. What does that mean and how does it affect the funding paradigm? Basically, one of the subsidies under Obamacare is money that's given to an insurance company to help bring down those deductibles and out-of-pocket expenses for lower-income folks. They call that a cost-sharing reduction subsidy. The effect is to make your insurance plan more generous. That money basically goes to the insurance company on your behalf. Congress has never bothered to pay the insurance companies for this subsidy. They mandate that the insurers offer it as a benefit, but Congress has never paid them for this. So what the insurers have done to kind of make up the difference is they've driven up the premiums for a so-called silver plan. The, the, the plans that you buy through Obamacare, are, they're graded like bronze, silver, gold, platinum, and basically, it's how generous they are. And the silver plan is the benchmark. That's The whole system is kind of tied to 
what is the price of a silver plan in your area? So the insurers are just jacking up the price of the silver plans, so they're making more money, and that's compensating them for providing you with that cost-sharing reduction subsidy. Our HSA option says, Congress, why don't you go ahead and pay the insurers directly, like you should have been doing all along? Why don't you prohibit silver loading, which is that jacking up of the premiums of the silver plans? Just make that illegal. And instead, the insurer either gets directly subsidized by Congress, or the individual can take that money and put it in to their personally owned health savings account. And when you do that, you actually lower federal spending. You'll actually spend less overall than what's happening now. So it's a win-win-win for taxpayers, for patients, for insurers. We have been talking with Dean Clancy. Dean is a senior policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity. He also advises the Paragon Health Institute. Dean, tell us a little bit about Americans for Prosperity. Also, where can folks go on the web to learn more? Americans for Prosperity is a national grassroots advocacy organization with chapters in 35 states and thousands of volunteers in all 50 states. We advocate for individual liberty, free enterprise, and smaller constitutionally limited government. We try to remove barriers so people can live their version of the American dream. Our website is americansforprosperity.org. I would also urge your uh, listeners to learn more about the HSA option and the personal option approach to health reform at our special website, personaloption.com. Dean Clancy from Americans for Prosperity. Dean, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, and we have the latest inflation numbers out. Not good once again. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. The June numbers, Scott, what do they show? The Club for Growth is an organization that's all about the growth, but this is the type of growth that we don't want to see. We're seeing really an inflation surge at this point, 9.1%, which is 41-year high. Listen, this is the hidden tax increase that nobody really wants to talk about, but everybody is starting to feel not only at the kitchen table, but in everything that we're buying. 9.1% is a heck of a lot of money year over year when you think about market reactions and what it's doing to our investments, what it's doing to uh, job creation and risk-taking. The bottom line is these prices are surging. We've seen record levels at the gas pump. The average in the uh, United States of America exceeded $5 per gallon last month, and that was a, a big indicator in core CPI which is basically related to food and energy components in the economy. And so there was even a a rumor this week, uh, the morning that the inflation numbers were released, that inflation was at 10.2%. And very quickly, the Bureau for Labor Statistics put out a statement and said, this is a fake article that's circulating on the internet. It's not going to be 10.2%. But it still exceeded economic forecasters initial projections that we'd be at around 8.8% because it did come in at 9.1%. I think that these inflation numbers are here to stay. We need to certainly figure out the solution through deregulatory actions and, and cutting taxes to get people to make investments to increase supply. But we also have to uh, certainly figure out the energy crisis here in the United States of America. 
And all of this is going to have a political impact, correct? I mean, we have midterm elections coming up now in just a couple of months. That's true. I think that there's a lot of folks right now, and, and you know, you look at Biden's approval number, I'm surprised it's not 9.1% right now. His approval is actually in the gutter, though. It's uh, just slightly over 33%. And this week, there was a reporter on the White House South Lawn that got into it with President Biden, and Biden engaged him. And what the reporter said was, more than half of Democrats didn't want Joe Biden to want to run for re-election in 2024. And he basically said, calm down, Jack, right? The typical Biden aggression came out of his shell. And he said, 92% of Democrats said that they would vote for me if I ran. And maybe that's true because there's such strong partisanship. If he's the nominee, 92% of people are absolutely going to vote for him that are Democrats. But he's losing his party's base. People are wondering, what the heck did we vote for in 2020? A lot of them just wanted to get rid of Donald Trump out of the White House. And what did they get? They got Joe Biden and and the Hunter Biden issues that come along with it, to be quite honest. You referenced the fact, Scott, that our way out of this is to cut taxes, to reduce regulation. But on Capitol Hill, it appears they may be nearing an agreement to actually raise some taxes. Well, I think that there are some skeptical senators here, but... The bottom line is Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer are back at it again, trying to figure out if they can get through the so-called reconciliation tax and spending bill. And as Chuck Schumer has been negotiating with Manchin, Manchin's been clear that he doesn't want to add to the deficit. And so their solution, of course, as Democrats, is to increase taxes. And so there's a tax called the net investment income tax right now, 3.8% where a lot of small businesses at the upper income levels are paying that tax. And so they want to increase these taxes on small businesses. And obviously, these pass-through entities that face the net investment income tax, they're already hurting. And so when you think about previous recessions that we've held, in 2009, Barack Obama said, the last thing we want to do during an economic recession is increase taxes. But that's exactly what Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin are proposing. I do think that there's some so-called centrist House Democrats that are very, very nervous about doing that. And I think there might be a couple other senators that are in vulnerable races uh, that don't want to increase taxes right on the edge of a recession heading into a major midterm election. Drilling down a bit more on the political aspects of this, Scott, talk a bit about the fact that these House members who may have somewhat centrist tendencies, also tend to come from highly competitive districts. Could a tax hike of this sort coming right before an election have a political impact? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the majorities in Congress are based off these so-called majority makers, the centrists from either Republicans or Democrats. A lot of people in Republican circles call these people squishes or Republicans in name only. And the bottom line is that many of them probably could run as a Democrat if it was a Democratic wave. So this is why the primaries matter when it comes to nominating who the Republicans are going to put forward on a ballot. But a conservative majority can actually fulfill those promises. We will continue to keep track of all of these things with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a little bit more about the club. We're an organization based on this idea of freedom and liberty and opportunity in our economy. If anybody wants to check out the candidates that Club for Growth PAC has endorsed, 
or the core mission of our 501c4 Club for Growth, we encourage you to check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson, we'll talk with you again next week, Scott. Thank you. All right. Thank you. The Food and Drug Administration is taking steps to ease the baby formula shortage, a problem it now admits it helped to create. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explains. The Food and Drug Administration has finally determined what's to blame for America's recent shortage of baby formula, and it's the Food and Drug Administration. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a look at the fact that the FDA finally admitted last week that it played a significant role in the baby formula shortage. And of course, government agencies don't just come out and say these sorts of things. They don't just openly admit these mistakes. But when you look at what the FDA did last week, it's pretty clear that they are acknowledging that they played a considerable role in creating this shortage in the first place, and the agency now says it's taking steps to address those mistakes. Specifically, what the FDA said is that it is taking steps to allow foreign-made baby formula manufacturers to import their goods into the United States on a permanent basis. And that's important because it was, in large part, the FDA's unnecessary and protectionist rules that effectively ban any foreign-made baby formula from being imported into the U.S. that created the shortage in the first place, or at least made it a lot worse than it otherwise would have been. On Wednesday of last week, the agency announced plans to tweak those rules so that foreign formula manufacturers can permanently import goods into the U.S. That will give American consumers greater choice in the marketplace. And, of course, it ensures more robust supply chains. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said that the need to diversify and strengthen the U.S. infant formula supply is more important than ever. He went on to say that ensuring that the youngest and most vulnerable individuals have access to safe and nutritious formula products is a top Top priority for the FDA. And that's great to hear. And I hope that's true, but it clearly hasn't been the top priority for the FDA in the past. As my colleagues at Reason and I have detailed throughout the last few months as this crisis has unfolded, the FDA's priorities have pretty clearly been directed towards protecting the domestic formula industry and the dairy industry, which provides a lot of key inputs for baby formula and, of course, is a heavy hitter in lobbying in Washington, D.C. It's been focused on protecting those industries from foreign competition, and as a result, it's nearly impossible to find foreign-made baby formula in the U.S. And I'm not talking about formula made in in China or somewhere else in the world that we don't trust where it might have come from or what might be in it. I'm talking about formula manufacturers based in places like England, the Netherlands, Germany, some of the biggest suppliers of baby formula in the world. Infants literally all over the planet drink formula from those major providers that are based in Europe, except here in the United States, where 98% of all baby formula consumed here is also produced here. And that's all fine and good until you have a problem with a major domestic supplier, which of course is exactly what happened. The Abbott Nutritional Plant in Michigan that was forced to close temporarily earlier this year due to an FDA investigation into possible contamination, that closure created a supply shock that left shelves empty and parents scrambling to find formula. And because of the FDA's protectionist rules that shut out foreign-made formula, 
along with high tariffs that are levied on the little bit of foreign formula that does get through, markets could not quickly adapt to address that shortage. There was no way to backfill the shortage of domestic suppliers with foreign suppliers. And so we ended up with empty store shelves. And of course, we also got some political stunts like the White House's silly Operation Fly formula thing that really didn't accomplish much of anything. In testimony to Congress, FDA officials over the past couple of months have admitted that they botched the response to the contamination at the Abbott plant. That's a good sign, of course, but the real culprit to this recent shortage is a deeper and a more pervasive one, and you have to understand that if you want to avoid problems like this in the future, because no matter what the nationalists might suggest, closing off the country to international trade is not a recipe for resilience. It actually makes our supply chains weaker by forcing them to be dependent like the baby formula supply chain was on just a few domestic producers. And this baby formula crisis should demonstrate exactly the flaw in that sort of thinking, the the thinking that, well, we should just make everything here and then we'd be more secure. It's actually quite the opposite as this shows. So it's good to see the FDA admit those mistakes and, and crack open the door a little to allowing foreign manufacturers to to import their formula into the United States on a permanent basis. Unfortunately, the list of actual policy changes that the FDA announced last week mostly amount to providing technical assistance to foreign firms that want to sell formula here. That is, they're basically offering to help those companies navigate the complex regulatory approval processes rather than just sweeping aside those approval processes entirely or at least shortening them considerably. If a formula maker has passed muster in the EU which generally has stricter regulations for health and safety than the FDA does anyway, that should be good enough for the FDA. You shouldn't have to go back through an approval process here. And a lot of this stuff has nothing to do with health and safety in the first place. Last year, for example, the FDA forced a recall of approximately 76,000 units of infant formula manufactured by a major producer in Germany and imported into the United States. And and the recall had nothing to do with health or safety, but merely because the canisters failed to meet the FDA's labeling standards. In this case, the products were banned because they didn't inform parents that they contained less than one milligram of iron per 100 calories. And that is just below FDA standards, even though it's certainly not going to put your child at risk. The same stuff coming from Europe that Biden ordered flown into the country on military planes during the recent shortage. So preventing Americans from buying perfectly safe formula just because the label doesn't meet an FDA standard, it's crazy at the best of times and it looks downright insane now. So give the FDA some credit for identifying itself as one of the major causes of the recent baby formula shortage. They get credit for that. But more changes are needed, and and we need permanent changes to U.S. trade policy in particular to make sure that a disaster like this doesn't unfold again. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out more of our coverage of this important issue and everything else going on in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And you can catch me again next week right back here on another edition of American Radio Journal. Other person employment benefits are a cost driver to state retirement systems. And they are significantly underfunded, as Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council details on this American Radio Journal commentary. Upon hearing the little-known term OPEB, most Americans are understandably perplexed, not knowing that OPEB, short for Other Post-Employment Benefits, is a trillion-dollar problem and a massive financial liability for states and their hardworking taxpayers across the country. OPEB probably is the most underreported 
but financially troubling acronym you've never heard of before today. Taxpayers and states owe more than $950 billion in unfunded OPEB liabilities to retired public employees. That's right, more than $950 billion, with a B, or more than $3,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Now, that's quite the debt for an acronym you've never heard of before today. Now, you might ask, what are OPEB liabilities? Well, we at ALEC and the Center for State Fiscal Reform put together our annual report on this topic to answer that question. Other post-employment benefits, or OPEB, cover all the benefits a retired public employee is eligible to receive in retirement that don't count as a pension. If a retired public employee is eligible for a pension, he or she is most likely eligible for OPEB benefits as well. And these benefits include things like health insurance, life insurance, Medicare supplemental coverage, and other benefits. For years, we've looked at these OPEB liabilities in our study and look at ways that policymakers can make reforms to reduce these policy liabilities. Most states do not adequately fund their OPEB plans, and unlike pensions, many do not pre-fund the OPEB plans at all. In fact, states have an average funding ratio of just under 12%, a critically low amount in these OPEB plans. That's shockingly even much worse funding ratio than even the massively unfunded pension liabilities in systems across the country that get so much media attention. Unless states enact policy reforms, unfunded OPEB liabilities could cause future tax increases or major cuts to core public services in many states. Our new ALEC report finds the following states had the highest unfunded liabilities per capita in the nation. Alaska, with more than 14,000 for every man, woman, and child in the state. Hawaii, over 13,000 per person. And New Jersey, almost 12,000 in liabilities per person in their OPEB plans. In total, 49 of the 140 OPEB plans examined on a report are pay-as-you-go plans, plans that have less than 1% pre-funding ratio. There's serious problems with the funding of these plans. While the overall story of unfunded liabilities is troubling, there are some positive stories and positive news in several states. Namely, Nebraska and South Dakota are two states across the country with no OPEB liabilities whatsoever. It's important to recognize these states like Nebraska and South Dakota as models for potential OPEB reforms. Plan structures in these states offer the ability for current employees and retirees to purchase health savings accounts, or HSAs, whereby employees and retirees make pre-tax contributions and the state government employers match the contributions up to a certain amount. Our new report details the positive changes to OPEB liabilities in places also like Indiana, where they have substantially reduced their unfunded OPEB liabilities. We discussed their defined contribution OPEB option, where they have created a plan that reimburses their retirees and their covered dependents for insurance and medical costs through an established OPEB trust. These reforms have helped Indiana reduce their total unfunded liabilities by over 38% in the last year alone. Absent policy reforms like those in Indiana, Kansas, South Dakota, and Nebraska, unfunded liabilities can grow rapidly and strain state budgets and state taxpayers, 
especially when coupled with massive unfunded pension liabilities, which total in the trillions of dollars across the country. With improvements to government financial transparency in annual reports such as ours at ALEC, thankfully states can no longer ignore or hide the nearly $1 trillion in, in total unfunded OPEB liabilities across America. Once again, our 50 states, the 50 laboratories of democracy, provide us with smart policy reforms that can help lawmakers solve these massive challenges of OPEB liabilities and other problems across the country. For more information on this big issue, go to alec.org to read our new report. For American Radio Journal, this is Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including our newest affiliate, K-E-L-O-A-M, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome to our new listeners in the Mount Rushmore State. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.